it changes nothing. Three very simple words that, in fact, changed everything. They were uttered by Justin Williams on this podcast's Instagram feed last Wednesday, and it has sent the entire Criterium world into another level. It created Crip Beef. But let's back up, let's set some context, let's figure out where we all got here from. In 2020, I met Danny Estevez from ButcherBox. He was an incredible human being. I really enjoyed spending a week with him in California and the other men and women on ButcherBox. Flash forward to this year, Danny is lighting it up, literally. Three wins for ButcherBox, two in Panama, against Travis McCabe and his best buddies team. What changed everything was that last week, Best Buddies announced that Danny Estevez was joining their team. A early season transfer that could fundamentally change the entire power structure and dynamic within the USA crit season and within USA criterium cycling as a whole. So yes, it emphatically changed everything. The story behind that could fill up a a volume of this podcast about why, what, who, when, where, and how, but we don't have time to talk about that because after Justin posted that comment, Travis McCabe fires back at Justin Williams, you're right, we were going to win no matter what. And that set the stage for what we all know became Crip Beef. So Danny Estevez is the face that launched a thousand comments. And now here we are. This is the moment in time where Criterium Racing could have its rebirth, its renaissance. Post-COVID, we had a great trajectory coming up into 2019, and COVID comes along, interrupts everything, and so we were all wondering what was going to happen in 2021. This could be the single unifying story for 2021 and beyond. This clash of the two champions from 2019, the amateur and the professional criterium champion, coming together mano y mano, team against team, but you can't just do that. It's the entire peloton. The entire peloton is now together, galvanized with one singular purpose, to prove who is the best bike racing team in America, which means who is the best criterium team in America. We now have the stage set for electricity. We have the stage set for legitimate fire. My name is Rob Kelly. This is Criterium Nation, a show about life lived one corner at a time. Because of all of this, we've reached out to Travis McCabe and we've reached out to Justin Williams. Travis has agreed to come on the show. We're going to record next week and hopefully the show will be out in two weeks time. So you'll have the opportunity to hear directly from him. I've asked Justin to come on the show. He hasn't responded to that request yet. There is an open invitation for Justin. Anytime he wants, come on the show. We can talk. Everything is is kind of at a stasis right now because the action is yet to start. The action starts at Tulsa. The first night, under the lights, Blue Dome, that's where these two guys will get together. But there's a lot of time between then and now. There's a lot of opportunity between then and now to set the stage, to build the anticipation for us to have this 2021 season start out with fireworks, 
literal fireworks at Tulsa and continue through the entire course of the year with crit championships, with Boise, with USA crits as a whole, with races like Sonny King. I don't know where these guys are going to butt heads, but we know that one place they've already started is on Instagram. The thing about athletes in this is a soapbox, forgive me for doing it, but like this is what I love to do is to talk about my fellow athletes and to talk about what makes us tick. The thing about the great ones, the legitimately real great ones, is that they don't race for money. They don't compete for money. They don't compete for titles. These aren't the things that motivate them. This isn't the reason why they get up and do what they do. They compete for a reason. You give them a reason to compete, you give them a reason to get fired up and to get excited and to get motivated, they will use that reason to motivate themselves, to make themselves better, to go after whatever it is that caused them to have that reason. That's why some of the best competitions that you will ever be a part of are competitions that are outside of the races outside of times where you pin a number on the sprint that you and your best friend go after each other coming into town, the Tuesday night semi kind of sort of race that happens, the Haynes Point Fight Club, the real competitions, the ones that you get geared up and fired up about. All superlatives aside, those people who are truly great will find the motivation. And when they find the motivation, they will choose to compete no matter what, no matter when, no matter where. And the results of that are the things that we talk about for years to come. Travis McCabe, Justin Williams, two of the best athletes in the United States, without a doubt. There are a cast of characters that are built around those two. And there are riders who have it as their sole focus in life to disrupt what those guys are doing. We can't sleep on the Connor Mullervies, the Connor Saleys, the Kevin Mullervies, the Tom Gibbonses, the Connor Dellenbanks, the guys who are there to disrupt, the guys who are like, wait, what about me? I want to be a part of this discussion too. And so now, 2021, May, we've got our story. We've got the unifying thing that's going to bring this entire Criterium season together and hopefully will carry us forward for the rest of this year and for years to come. The beef. So we've turned to Adam Meyerson to help break this down. Adam, of course, legendary crit racer, somebody who's been around the block and knows all about it. He's going to help break down what the Crip Beef is about, but more importantly, this show has always been about one thing, taking a deep dive into a topic, explaining it, providing you context, providing you a history lesson that goes with it so that you understand not just what happened on Saturday and Sunday, but why it happened on Saturday and Sunday. Before we get to that, let's talk about the Wide Angle Podium Network of Shows, the world's only collection of top-tier independent cycling media WideAnglePodium.com, go there, become a member, help support the shows like this one or like the Slow Ride Podcast, who 
had a show come out earlier this week that mentioned Crip Beef. Go check it out. It is a lighthearted, wonderful take on what is going on there and why Tim, the super rookie Hayes, is going to set up a local legends route right in front of Travis's house so that, you know, he might be able to bump into him. Whatever. Listen to him talk about it. This show is brought to you by Source Endurance. SourceE.net is their website. Head there. Take a look at the full offering of coaching services that they have. If you want to know one thing about Source Endurance, one thing that's going to sell you on their services, they coach Justin and Corey. Adam Mills from Source Endurance has been coaching Justin and Corey for a very long time. He wrote an article that's out today that talks about what it will take to beat Justin in a sprint and uses data from a sprint that Justin had, 1,774 watts, 12 seconds, 30 to 42 miles an hour. The, the fluid dynamics is laid out there in front of you. You can take a look at it. When you go to source.net, use the promo code Criterium Nation at checkout for $50 off your first month of services there. So, preludes aside, superlatives aside, all of it aside, let's get in now with this episode where Justin Williams and Travis McCabe are the topic, but Adam Meyerson is here to help break it all down. Before we talk about Travis and Justin Williams and the war of words that happened on Instagram and Twitter and elsewhere in the social media sphere, I think it's important that we get a lot of context because what ended up happening on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of last week is a direct result of kind of the confusion of where crit racing is in the United States and what USA Cycling has created or fallen into as a result of kind of historic precedent. Adam Meyerson, of course, doesn't need much of an introduction, but he is somebody who comes with a vast experience of of history and knowledge, and a lot of it's been forgotten. So, Adam, welcome to the show. I want to start out with the hardest question of all, which is, why is crit racing not on equal footing with the other disciplines within bike racing? You've got straight road racing, time trialing, cyclocross, BMX, mountain bike. Crit racing seems to be a sport in and of itself within the greater confine of bike racing, but we end up putting it kind of off to the side. Why is that the case in the United States? Um, I think the main reason is because we have an inferiority complex in the U.S. about the way we race bikes at both the amateur and professional level. And that's because we aspire to a European model because we believe the European model to be the apex of the sport. And why is that the apex of the sport? That probably goes to the fact that it's an Olympic discipline. And so the hierarchy of the IOC to the UCI to USA Cycling to then what we do on the ground. Criteriums are not an Olympic sport and are not part of the European idea of high-level bike racing. And so I think Americans who want to keep us on the level internationally 
that's why you see things like aspirational races like Tour California, Tour Colorado, Tour Utah as somehow a bigger deal or more ideal than say USA crits or, you know, the, the, the old national criterion calendar. It's amazing. You phrase it like that because the Maryland cycling classic, a first year event that will be held this year in 2021 labor day weekend conflicting directly with gateway cup billing itself as the biggest bike race in the United States. And you know, it's advertising itself like that. It's not the biggest bike race in the United States. It's probably the highest rated bike race in the United States. It's only a men's event, but there are tons of other cycling events in the United States that are probably bigger than that. You've got all of the World Cups and the World Championships in cyclocross. You've got Tulsa Tough, which draws more people in bike racing than any other bike race in the country for its three days. Gateway's huge. Intelligentsia is nine days. But yet again, somebody can advertise themselves as this is the biggest, baddest race because the UCI says it is so. Why does it matter to us in the United States so much compared to like the Belgian model? They love cyclocross. They don't care that it's not a, a, a Olympic event. They get behind it. The Dutch are right there with them. They get behind it and they've made it their own national thing. Why do we not have that here in the United States with crits? That's a bigger question, I think, than um, you might even realize. Uh, because I think that then ties into um, the size of the country. And while, yes, we all may be united in this idea of what it means to be American, you know, why is Cross so popular in Belgium? Belgium's the size of Massachusetts. We have as many UCI races and cyclocross in the United States as they do in Belgium. And people will sometimes complain that there's too many races in the US, but I can fly to Belgium in the same amount of time that I can fly to California. So imagine if we had, you know, 40 UCI cross races just in Massachusetts. Well, then you'd have all the races would be on, you know, Fox Sports New England, or, you know, we'd have some regional sports cable channel probably covering that type of event, which is what you have in Belgium. You have TV coverage for the events. So you can do different things in small regions that are basically nation states um, where the culture reflects that interest and they don't have to look outside because it's entirely a regional sport. We just call it a national sport because their countries are, you know, region sized. Why can't we do that with crits? I mean, I don't know, is think about how many crits, how, how popular crits are in California or in Southern California, especially even California, you got to split in half. So I don't know. I just don't think you get consistency from region to region in the US. I think you have scenes in America and I think you have scenes that have more crits than others. Nationally, I just think what you get is wanting to compete on the global stage because we haven't had success, the success that we want on that level. And the people with money who want to spend money on it uh, want to see the riders competing in the biggest race in the world. I guess you could say it's because of the Tour de France. It's because Tour de France is the biggest race in the world. And Americans have this idea that we should we should be competitive in the biggest events in the world. And the the path to that is Tour de France style, you know, multi-day stage races or more big one-day classics. What do we need to do in order to bridge the gap? Obviously, USA Crits creating a league concept is is one method that we're trying. They're doing live free 
streaming on YouTube that's bringing it into everybody's home. They're having it at night so that it's not, you know, like a Saturday morning thing while you're trying to deal with kids. But it's still missing something, and I'm not exactly sure what it is that it's missing. A unified story, a good storyteller. What is it that we are missing that the Belgians have or the French have or the Italians have? I think when you ask that question, I think it seems like you're comparing it to cross and the popularity of cross as a like a subculture, a subsport, you know, a discipline. Why is that discipline so popular? And I don't know if that's entirely fair to do because I've raised crits in the Netherlands. I lived on and off in Amsterdam for a couple of years where my ex-wife was a student at the University of Amsterdam. And I was a retired, I guess I quit. You can't call it retired. I hadn't turned pro and I had kind of given up racing full time and was coaching at that point. But I did a summer of crits in, in and around Amsterdam and they're just like American crits. And there's okay prize money and there are teams that focus on them. Some of those guys were ex-pros who had raced at the highest level of the sport, but um, those races aren't on TV per se. They're essentially the equivalent of local races. They're like the village criterium. They're amazing. They, I couldn't believe how much fun I had in them and how similar to American crits they were, but they're certainly not on the level of an international uh, UCI event. I want to answer your question about USA crits because I think USA crits is essentially doing everything right. And I'm really happy with the progress that they're making. So we can talk about like what's going well for them right now. I think a thing that would make a big difference is, I know this sounds funny to say, but if the UCI actually got more involved in crits, not less involved, crits are recognized by the UCI. They exist. And the biggest crits in, in Europe, of course, are the post-tour criteriums that are, you know, partially demos, right? They're they're not completely fixed, but they're mostly fixed and everybody's pretty careful and they're they're yeah, they're they're demonstrations. You know, what if there was, what if the UCI actually got serious about criteriums the way we're serious about them here and they are in Australia and and in the UK and again, like Germany, Holland, uh, those places all have like um, quote unquote American style criteriums. Imagine if there was a world championships. Imagine if we treated it seriously as a discipline, the same way the UCI treats bike ball, Holland rad sport, you know, artistic cycling to Americans. Those disciplines are bananas like it's wild that whole countries take you want to talk about a sub-discipline right i think uh, indoor indoor and artistic cycling is just wild to watch and those aren't things that we practice here so we know that criteriums could be elevated by the uci and if they were and they were let's say like standardized and there was a pipeline there even if it wasn't an olympic sport i think it might help the u.s get over its inferiority complex when it comes to cycling and recognize that the thing that we have to offer that we're really good at are criteriums. And I will say without exaggeration, I think the riders who specialize in American criteriums are, are absolutely among the best riders in the world at that discipline, at what they do. This is why in the past 50 years of crits in America, you saw Dutch, Australian, New Zealand, Belgian, German crit specialists come race here for US teams. The riders who were good at that style of racing came here to do it. This is the NBA for crits, and it has been for 50 years. Tell me what USA Crits is doing right. Uh, you know, you left that out there, and I gotta, I have to follow up. You know, I have so much respect for what they have done, starting with Gene 30 years ago or more. 
with Athens Twilight. And for me, Athens Twilight is, it's the best criterium in America, like now and historically. And Gene's been there since the beginning, um, trying to get people to take criterium seriously. And he's had a number of different people helping him out, um, Ashley Travieso and and others since then. And so what they've done with USA Crit since 2007 has evolved to what it is now. And I think the fact that we have, it's getting easier to do coverage. Let's call it guerrilla style coverage, or let's call it low co- high quality, low cost coverage. Cameras have gotten better. Streaming has gotten better. So now, just like anything, you don't need someone else to come in with a bunch of money necessarily, or a big network to broadcast what you're doing. The broadcast package that they've put together has not been easy. It hasn't always gone well. They've made a lot of mistakes, but now it's coming together. And the model they have with teams committing for the whole season and there being a benefits package, I mean, that goes back. I got fourth the first year in 2007, and no one was sure if that was a thing that was worth taking seriously until after it had started. And I I was on Time Pro Cycling then. I think I was on Time Pro Cycling in 2007. I don't remember what we were called that year. It's a team that, you know, it, it ended up being smart stuff in the end, but convincing the team to focus on that, that this was going to turn into a thing that it was worth chasing. They should put us on planes to go to those races. I got second in the USA crits in 2008 overall. And then the team started orienting itself around USA crits. So I could tell you stories about how teams rose as USA crits rose, that we tied our fate of that team to USA crits and tried to boost each other and and grow together. So I see where they are now. Again, it's, you're asking a very big question because we want to talk about like, what are the teams? What teams even exist when there's no UHC anymore, or there aren't 10 pro teams showing up to these races anymore. There's two pro teams and maybe four more amateur teams that might've been pro 10 years ago. What I think is there are stories to tell there. Those teams don't have to be pro. They just have to show up and throw down. Uh, a team like ButcherBox, they're committed to those races and there are great stories to tell. And I think USA Crits is also through social media, the rise of social media has an ability to tell stories of those riders. And I think if you're interested in Crits and you want to follow it, you can. It's there for you to follow if you're interested. The idea of USA Crits really brings me to the second topic is this concept of what is or is not a championship. I've been thinking about this a lot over the past couple of days because we don't have a unified sense of what is a champion in sport. You've got a wide variety of ways that champions are crowned. You've got the best of seven series like in baseball and in basketball or hockey. You've got something more like a one and out NCAA tournament, for example, that's classic. You've also got European Premier League, which is, it doesn't matter. There's no playoffs. It's just whoever wins throughout the course of the season and accrues the most points is the champion. In bike racing, like in a lot of sports, we decide that the champion is the man or the woman who wins this specific day. That isn't necessarily the only way or the right way to run it. So you look at somebody like Starla Tettegrin, or Tom Gibbons, champions of USA crits in their own right, probably two of the best crit racers in the United States, at least they were in 2019. Are they better or worse than Travis McCabe, Justin Williams, Michael Hernandez, Emma White, who were the individual USA cycling crown champions in the same time? Talk to me about what you think is 
the best or most appropriate way within cycling for us to crown who is the best? Well, I think in cycling, we're unique in that we have, I think there are three ways to do that or, or three things to look at. Single day events, and we've always valued single day events, single day championships, classics, where all the chips are on the table for that single day. And that's always been important. And it will, you know, whether that gets a jersey or not, picking a day where you say everybody knows they have to be at their best on this day and whatever happens, happens. Second way to do that is with a series where you have, we talked before the show and I, I brought up the old Norbert National series where the Stars and Stripes was awarded to the winner of the Norbert National series. It was a championship series. And if you won the series, you got the jersey. Then the third thing is a calendar. And in cross, this comes up a lot and people kind of trip over this a little bit. A calendar is all of the events on the schedule. And it is possible then to track points for a calendar. So if you look at UCI points, the UCI calendar, you score, we're talking about cross now, you're scoring points all season long towards the UCI calendar. And if you win the calendar, that's significant if you finish the season with the most UCI points. But then if you look in cross, you'll see, well, there's individual professional series that are eight races. The series that I run, the New England Cyclocross series is one of those UCI series. You know, we know that there's two series in Belgium. There's also the World Cup. That's a series. Uh, and there's a jersey for that as well. I think they all do something different. They all tell you something different about a rider. You can win a series without winning an individual round. You can win a calendar by being consistent and not necessarily winning a single round. A, a single day championship is exciting because you can't fix your mistakes. You have to be perfect on the day. Everything has to go your way and uh, and you leave with the jersey. So why do we award the jersey to the one day as opposed to those other things? That's a very good question. Obviously that's tradition. I don't know where that tradition starts. I don't know the history of that tradition, but you're right that that is the tradition in cycling where at least for the na- crowning the national champion, we do that based on a single day. But there are other ways to recognize talent with a series and a calendar. You've been a national champion in the past. You've been around national champions as a pro and as an elite rider. So you can tell us what is the actual benefit to being a champion? You know, is it cash? Is it notoriety? What What are the things that you really genuinely walk away with other than a hearty handshake and a medal. I won collegiate cross nationals in 96, which felt very mediocre to me at the time, though I'm very proud of it now. I beat some really good guys that day. Um, Tim Johnson, especially Tom Danielson, number of other people in that top 10. It was a good top 10 when I look back on it. And I'm more proud of it now than I was then. I wasn't very excited about it then because I had aspired to more. I thought maybe I could win, you know, elite nationals. And I just very simply was not good enough to do that. And so in my racing career, I became good at consistency, getting super, super fit for the season and always being there. But I wasn't much of a winner. I didn't win very often. And that's why something like USA Crits was great for me because I was always getting call-ups. By being in the top five at USA Crits and then later in the national criterium calendar, that's how I created value for myself. I didn't have to win, but I was always in top 10, top five, always getting called to the line, always in the press releases. I was always getting my picture taken. And that's once I've cracked the code on that, that's how I got a job year after year after year. 
it wasn't until I was retired and been when was retired for a year and a half and then started doing 45 plus races that I started winning national championships again. And I have to tell you that I really enjoyed it more than I thought that I would. I never focused on a single day as a pro. I wanted to be good all season and I wanted to get hired again the following year. As a master, I couldn't be that strong all year long. I had to pick twice a season to pretend I was a pro for six weeks and actually do that training and show up at my best to try to win on that given day. So that when I did that, it was very, very rewarding because it's this like tangible, I picked this date, I worked backwards from it, I did all this work, I controlled every variable I could, and I showed up on race day, and I was the best rider in the field, and I made all the right decisions, and I had all of the good fortune, and I got this jersey as a result of it. And everybody else knew what was on the line, and everybody else was fighting for the same thing, and I did everything most correctly, let's say. So the value in that, I often describe having the jersey as the one ring, I liked it more than I thought I would. And I became very attached to being the national champion and wearing that jersey every day. Um, as a 45 plus, I won cross three times, road once, criterium once, and Pan Ams and cross once. Now, it was fun. It was a fun little run of, of stuff, but it really helped. I have to be honest, like it helped me continue to get sponsorship, even as a 45 plus master, you know, to have influence and get entry fees or even sometimes start money. Uh, I continue to have value because I was winning championships. People care about titles. And so if you have a title, every race you show up for, you get called to the start line because you have a title and you have a jersey. So it's very, very valuable. If it's valuable to me as a 45 plus retired ex-pro racing for fun to promote my coaching company, imagine what it's like to be the professional national champion. Why do we put so much value in bike racing on a jersey? I can think of no other discipline within any sport where the national champion gets to dress differently than everybody else on his or her team. You know, as the national champion in swimming, I didn't suddenly get the right to wear a American flag Speedo. I think that would have been awesome, but I didn't. The best that you see maybe in football or baseball is a championship ring or a patch on a shoulder saying that they were the the champion or the, the pennant in the outfield. But in bike racing, and specifically in the major parts of bike racing, so road, cross, mountain bike, you've got these drives for the national championship jersey, and the jersey means something. Why have we attached a jersey to winning? I have to be honest with you. I do not know the answer to this question. I don't know the history, the cycling history of how national championship jerseys came into existence. I can tell you that as much as I understand is the the cultural value of nationality in cycling, which is essentially a European sport. And I think that's based in changing borders and national identity in Europe and how valued that is. We know as cyclists and we watch European bike racing, half the time they don't even tell you the trade team a rider is on. They'll tell you the rider's country before they tell you the rider's trade team. That's a, still a European value. And I think that goes back to you know pre-World War I 
time and then into World War One, World War Two, and and the the culture of the sport coming out of that, where um, nationality mattered so much in Europe. Uh, I, I'm sure the tradition has to be born out of that, and I'm sure someone actually does know the answer to this question, a, a better cycling historian than me. But I, I I believe it has to be tied to that. So let's talk about American cycling history, which I think is something that you are our expert. I've been looking around recently, doing a lot of research to try to figure out if America is unique within the confines of countries that have national championships for criteriums. We are not unique. Our national championship and criteriums is probably better attended than a lot of other countries. But what seems to make us unique is that there are two men's crit championships. There's only ever been one woman's championship. If you look at the British model, the British used to have an amateur and a pro. They ditched that amateur back in the mid-90s. The Irish just started having a woman's criterium championship in 2018. The Aussies have been doing it for a long time. But for us and for the men, we've got these two. The amateur criterium champion, which in 2019, so he's still the reigning one, is Justin Williams. And the professional criterium champion, which is Travis McCabe. And that was what will ultimately bring us to our conversation about those two. But start here with why do we have these two? I think what you have to do is look at countries or disciplines that have a well-developed professional class. And anywhere that they have that, they will then also have an amateur championships. In the U.S., we, for a long time, had a well-developed professional cycling class for men. And so there were more than enough racers to have a separate professional category and an amateur category for men. And the amateur championships were always going to be then aspirational. And that there was a difference between being a pro and an amateur. If you were a pro in the pro race, you were on a pro team, you were you had a contract, you hopefully, but maybe not, were getting some kind of salary. But the idea was that cycling was your job. And if you were an amateur, the support level should be lower. Maybe you're also working a job. You're you're hopeful, you know, you're you're hoping to be a professional, maybe. And if you won the amateur championships, it meant that maybe you got a professional contract the following year. So it was a way to identify talent. And those classes were genuinely different, even though still half the time the races were, you know, pro one, two pros and amateurs were racing together. The reason why it's different for the women is we didn't have professional women until honestly, recently we had full-time female bike racers, but they were not recognized as professional by the UCI. They didn't have salary minimums or contract rules. All that has only happened in the past 10 years. So what you had for the women was only amateur. They had one category for, for, for road and for criteriums, and they were essentially open, right? They were open to all women because they weren't professional women. Eventually, we had a professional women's race at Philly, and there was, I, for a while, I believe, still an amateur women's road race as well. To be in that professional criterium or professional road championships was part of the value of purchasing or getting that UCI license. Becoming a third division team was was basically how you got into those races. And it was Philly week. It was pro 
crit championships. There were a number of races that you got access to as a professional team. So there was a difference between being a pro and an amateur. Even if you weren't getting paid, you had access to events that amateurs didn't have access to. And, and then by default, access to maybe getting on a better team or winning more prize money or getting more exposure or better sponsors. All those things came with being a pro. So when those races went away, and I will also say when European focused races like Tour California, Tour Colorado, Tour Utah, those races really hurt the criterion scene because those pro teams that used to attend the crits, and we can maybe talk about this, we can talk about the NCC as well. They needed to get into those races. All their sponsors cared about was being on TV for Tour California, Tour Colorado, Tour Utah, and all of their resources became oriented around those three races and they stopped going to the crits. And this is when the crits really became their own scene of pros and amateurs, but but let's call them full-time amateurs who would have been pros, who were on amateur teams that would have been pro teams in the past, but weren't aspiring to be in the Tour of California. And this is where the need for a pro crit championships and a amateur crit championships probably went away. What time frame is that? The last year of the NCC was 2015. Prior, the NCC was created in 2012 and USA Crits had existed since 2007 at that point and had started to really do well and were the ones that were screaming at USA Cycling, take Crit seriously, take Crit seriously. Eventually, I guess you could say that they did what happened was that the the teams that were under the pro teams that were under increased pressure to 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 spend resources on things like Tour of California and also cared about the national racing calendar and wanted to win the, it used to be important to win the national USA Cycling national racing calendar and it used to consist of a number of crits as Tour of California got more important teams said we don't want to send our guys to the crits uh, we have guys that we can send to the crits, but I don't want to send my stage race guy to, to Athens Twilight. And we need to split these calendars up. Let's make a separate calendar for the crits and a separate calendar for the road events. And most teams and team directors and me included as a representative of my team at the time thought that was a great idea. And so in 2012, the national road, the, the national racing calendar was split into the national road calendar and the national criterium calendar. What we thought was going to happen was that that was going to free all the teams up to really focus on crits. And instead a number of teams just abandoned the crits and put all of their resources into the road calendar because they wanted to go to California, Colorado and Utah. That's what their sponsors wanted. People who were good at crits, who cared about crits, teams that cared about crits, they did focus on the NCC and it was great. And USA Cycling did a great job of it. I personally focused on it that I would call that like the meat of my late career, um, USA crits and NCC without those things, I might not have had a job. So they were, it was very good for me, but yeah, 2012, 13, 14, 15 were sort of, I think the, the best years. And that's when on the other hand, some teams stopped going. We had you, that's when UHC started to dominate and it was UHC versus mountain khakis became smart stop later and then a number of high level amateur teams and smaller pro teams that were also competing in those events and i would say 
that's when maybe we didn't need a separate pro and amateur championships because we were all racing against each other every weekend, just like they are now. USA Crits is P1-2. The PRT races, which are a huge supermajority crits, are P1. But still, you know, you've got a wide variety of difference in athletes between the the working P1s and the guys who are basically pros masquerading as Cat 1s because they earn more money in their 9-to-5 job. When did that change from legit professional paid money, you know, making a living that way to this kind of hybrid system that we've got now where we've got a lot of guys who are making enough money as is to be at the top end of the cat one world to be elite amateur quote unquote, and still not a pro. So like the need for that divide between the pro crit and the amateur crit, when did that die off? It happened shortly after the split of the national racing calendar into pro and crit. So I don't think it happened all at once, but from it ha- it started in, in 2012 because so many of the pro teams just deprioritized the crits. Pro crit championships was still a hard race when it was just pros, but each year that field got smaller and smaller as teams that were taking out pro licenses were doing it because they were chasing those medalist events. It, I would summarize and say that medalist events are what killed pro crit racing in the US. It certainly killed the pro teams focusing on them with those budgets and those salaries and that priority because those globally televised stage races were a return on investment that the crits couldn't match because they were truly global. It was global coverage. It was global exposure. So even though crits are an exceptional value, they were operating on a different scale, let's say. So that's, yeah, I think that's when UHC dominated and and Team Mountain Khakis, I would say, were the, the valiant underdogs every single weekend for five years, it felt like. Yeah, I remember distinctly Armed Forces because that was my one UHC experience every year for sure. The year that Curtis Windsor was on SmartSop or Mountain Khakis, uh, you know, it was like this big thing because they came to the front with 15 laps to go. And it's like, oh my God, somebody's going to challenge UHC. And that lasted all of a hot second. And UHC. Yeah, I remember when we did yeah, that. Yeah. UHC came back to the front. They reestablished their dominance. I want to kind of bridge here from talking about championship pro versus championship amateur to Travis and Justin and, and the recent dust up on Instagram. But I think we need to stop for a second to figure out what needs to be done with the pro crit championship and with the amateur crit championship and how to harmonize it so that the two continue to mean something or ditch one that isn't working, or I don't know what your suggestion is going to be here. Cause I, I remember 2018 when Justin won in Hagerstown, I was at the race. I remember watching on USA Cycling's coverage in Knoxville when Travis won. So, I mean, I know these events. I remember them. I remember how they talked about how Justin wasn't at Knoxville because only he was invited, not his entire team. 
there's a lot of politics going on right there. What do we do? How do we make this work? Well, the mistake that USA Cycling made, in my opinion, well, let me back up. One of the first correct things that USA Cycling did here was when they got the foreign riders out of the Pro Crit Championships. So for a long time, like when we were in Downers Grove, foreign riders on US trade teams were allowed to race Pro Crit Championships. And the logic there was, hey, these are the riders that are racing here in the US every weekend. These are they are important part of these US teams, and we need the riders to fill the field out. They were afraid of a small field if it was just US pros. Eventually we had, I mean, when I turned pro in 2003, there were like 12 teams. You know, there were there were hundreds of US pros. Uh, and so there was more than enough riders to fill the field out. And they did eventually get rid of the foreigners. And I think those were the best years. Little did we know that the like 2000s were some of the peak years of domestic racing in the US and that things would get worse. You know, like we, we just, we thought we would get more money or things were going to get better. We didn't know we, we were at some kind of peak of something. So that got us to where we are now, where the fewer and fewer pro teams are showing up. And actually there are fewer and fewer pro teams, period. How many pro teams do we have right now in the US? Not too many. Do we have five? I don't even know if we have five. It depends on the men's side, if you're talking world tour, pro road tour, or just continental pro. But then we have that whole cadre of domestic elite teams, which are the quasi pros. Yeah, well, but except this is the funny thing. They're not. The quasi pros are the continental teams. Third division continental team, the UCI does not consider that professional. Those are national amateur teams in every other country. So they're the ones that cross back and forth between like they're the true pro-am, tam, pro-am teams globally. So those American domestic elite teams, that's a whole tier down from that. Those are 100% amateur teams. And so this is the mistake I think USA Cycling made was once you started inviting amateur teams to the pro crit championships, you just undermined every pro team in America who paid money for a UCI license and went to the sponsors and said, we're a professional team. We have access to these professional events. If you want exposure at these events, we're the team that you need to sponsor as opposed to one of these amateur teams. And you need to pay us this much money so that we can get to these events, et cetera. UCI Cycling absolutely undermined every Division Three team, every continental team in America when they let elite domestic teams into the pro championships. And in doing so, also created the confusion around what the hell is an amateur nationals if some of the amateurs can race in pro nationals? Of course, people are confused by that. It, it doesn't actually make any sense. And sometimes even I get confused about like who's eligible to wear what jersey when, because normally Travis, who is the professional criterium champion, is now an amateur and is absolutely not eligible normally to wear that jersey anymore. He's not a professional. He's not in professional events, technically speaking. Uh, he can't wear the jersey. But because amateurs are allowed to race in the professional championships, he's allowed to wear the jersey because how could he not be allowed to? If, if an amateur won it and could wear it, of course, he can continue to wear it now that he's an amateur again. So now we have a situation where the amateur crit champion is on a pro team, but didn't turn pro. And I don't know this for a fact, but I, I believe this has to be a factor in why Justin did not become a member of the professional 
team because he wanted to continue to wear his jersey. He would have lost a lot of value. If, if in turning pro, he was no longer aware, allowed to wear his amateur national champion jersey, he immediately sees a bunch of value go out the window because he's been, you know, road and crit champion now for a year and a half or whatever, because we didn't have a season last year. This is what's funny about crit beef is they're both right. I mean, they're talking shit at each other, but they're essentially both right. Uh, one of them, one of us may be more polite than the other about it. I don't know. They're both being silly, I think. But yeah, but they're not wrong. The thing is, is that USA Cycling tried to change its rules this year a little bit to confront the who's what, when, where, and how of who can get into pro crit nats. And so this year in 2021, and I don't know if this would have been true for 2020 because that year basically didn't exist for me anyways. You've, you've obviously got your, you know, UCI pro teams can go and race crit championships. On top of that, the domestic elite teams are invited to the pro crit championships. And then your D1 teams for USA crits are invited to attend too, assuming that you are a cat one. So D1 teams have cat twos in some case on the men's side. So you've got all these people who are now coming to pro crits, but in the same breath, can some of those guys show up and race both? Yeah, of course. And this is why I think USC Cycling, in their attempt to make sure the Pro Crit Championships is uh, an event worth watching and has a competitive field, have actually ruined it, have actually undermined it. I personally think we're better off with 25 pros, 25 riders on registered UCI pro teams, banging it out with just each other. If you're going to have a pro championship and call it a pro championship, as opposed to calling it an open championship. Because here's the thing, the pro championship is more open than the amateur championship. The amateur race is just cat ones. And, and you could argue now that that is more exclusive, harder to get into than the pro crit championship is because of all these other cat ones that they're inviting. So the pro championship is a pro-am championship. The amateur championship is an amateur only championship. We absolutely do not need both of those because it is true that in the current state of criterium racing in America, our top amateur criterium riders are on the level with the pros that will show up. So if that's the case, I think what we should be asking ourselves is, do we need both championships right now? The current state of the sport, does it require both championships? Look at cross. In the U.S., we do not have a pro and amateur cyclocross national championships. It's just open. We have in the past, there were a couple of years that they gave a jersey to the first pro across the line, and there were like six pros in the race, You know, like 50 dudes at the start line, six of them are pros. And of course, for women, that didn't apply at all because they weren't professional women, technically speaking, right? In Belgium, they have a professional and amateur men's cyclocross championship, and the amateur Belgian national champion gets a jersey. Why do they have that? Because they actually have a pro class because they have a legit pro class and it is an important title to be the best guy without a contract. The best guy without a contract gets value out of that and maybe gets a contract. So I could see it changing again in the future, but if you're going to make a decision about like the health and state of the sport right now, it seems pretty clear 
that we do not require two events. If you're going to run two events, I don't care if 15 pros show up. It should just be pros. It has to have, the value has to be oriented around having taken out a professional license for your team and gotten a contract on one of those teams. So let's talk crit beef. There is this thing inherent with athletes, especially with people who have a tendency of winning more often than they lose. And there is a there is a personality that goes with it. You know, there is a level of bravado, a level of confidence, and it seems to be more the case in sprinters than it does in breakaway riders, where there that that is almost exaggerated or amplified. So you can see where crit beef would come from. You've got people who just naturally are confident with themselves. They've gotten experience of winning. They know what's going to happen to them 95% of the time when they line up. So you get these two incredible athletes in Justin and Travis, and they start unleashing words against each other and with each other and in the public forum, which is where Crip Beef comes from. What's very interesting here is that you have real life experience with both Travis and with Justin. You've been on both of their teams at various points in times in their career. You've seen them grow up in the sport because they are younger than you. You've seen them make mistakes. You've seen them have people come in from outside and grab them and say, don't do that again. What is your history with these guys like? Well, I'll start with Travis. We were teammates first um, in my last year on Smart Stop in 2014. And then I was teammates with Justin in 2015 in my last year as a pro on Estella's, where I was the captain of the team that year. Well, you're right that they're similar in lots of ways. What I can tell you about Travis is what impressed me most about him and also Eric Marcotte, those guys are killers. And what I mean by that is they really, really want to win. They really believe in themselves. They believe in their talent. They're not afraid of anybody. And the way, and you could see it in the way those guys, both of those guys raced that season. And it's the way Travis races. They're not jerks. They're not bad guys. Um, They're fun and funny guys. And um, I think the reason why Travis and I have, even though we might not have a compatible personality types and that we want to go get beers together, he's a guy who cares about other people actually, and um, has a moral code that he lives by. And I think we have mutual respect for each other as a result of that. And so, but I will tell you the thing that I was most impressed, those guys, I mean, they train hard, they're committed, whatever, like you'd expect them to be. But I just was always impressed by how hard they would swing, how much they believed in themselves and how much they wanted to win. And so when you see the way they talk in Crippy, if you see that that's how it comes out, I think Travis does a good job of generally staying off of social media for that reason, because this is what happens. Like he tries to stay away from it because I think he feels like once he opens his mouth, this isn't me criticizing me. I think this is his opinion of himself. I think he probably wished he never joined in because this is how it goes. Um, so he he keeps his opinions to himself for the most point most part because I think he just doesn't want to get involved in it. He'd rather just go out and win races. And that's where the anger comes out. What about on Justin? For Justin, it's been different because Justin was good from the beginning as a junior and got identified early on. 
and got opportunities early on that didn't go his way for lots of reasons, uh, reasons that he's identified that I believe are 100% true and accurate. And maybe for other reasons that he might not want to talk about, about like girlfriend stuff or, you know, there's just lots of personal things for every rider where you don't get along with your DS or something to that effect. So when we were teammates on Estella's, Andrew Fry, who was the DS at Estella's, was sort of the next guy to say, we know how talented Justin is and we don't think he's been given the space to develop that he needs or the support that he needs, the opportunity to just be himself. And we want to give him that opportunity. And so he was on the team in 2014 before I came on. And then in 2015, when I came on and, you know, I think you can go back and look at his results and you can see that he's as talented as we know that he is now. And that he was when he was a junior, if things go his way, um, if he's done the training, if his fitness is there, if the lead out is right, if all these things are in place, he's the fastest guy out there. Going back to Travis for a second, you know, Travis would win different races. Travis is very good at criteriums, but he's winning stages and stage races. And so with Justin, I don't think Justin really hit his stride until after Estella's. And I do think that's sort of the narrative that he also talks about. I sometimes wish Justin would give maybe more credit to someone like Andrew, who really did try to get behind him, or Paul Abrams, who runs Paul Abrams, who runs Elevate. Um, Justin was on Elevate. It was cash call back then. Paul is another guy who sort of got behind Justin for a while and and tried to get him to the level that he eventually did get to. So I think Justin took all that experience and finally when the team he was on that next year was um silence cannondale yeah silence silence is where justin really hit his stride because finally he had a team well he had hilton clark as a ds instead of a competitor who could really who was based in california the team was built around justin in a sense justin was the guy that they were leading out and that's when justin really started to thrive and have success um and of course the sport imploded and then Justin was kind of left without a team for a little bit and has finally put his own team together. So I guess what I would say the difference there is, is Justin's always known how good he is. And a number of other people have also believed in his talent and it's just taken some maturity and develop and development and understanding of the sport and the right structure that he eventually had to create himself for him to truly succeed in the way that he has succeeded. And I mean, God, it's, He's obviously in a great spot right now. And I think anyone who's known him couldn't be happier for him for that. Where did this beef come from? You know, I mean, just reading through the thread of comments, you know, it starts innocent enough. It does. You're right. And then all of a sudden, boom, it blows up. And it wasn't like any one thing. And and you don't see a lot of overlap in these guys' careers either. So it's not like they're constantly butting heads at Tulsa or, you know, at stages of, of Amgen tour of California. Like this just seems to come out of nowhere. Well, here's what I think. Social media, there's some, just like a little bit of trash talk. Right. And I think Justin's original comment was harmless enough to begin with. It's just, people who actually know each other kind of talking shit. And it was kind of funny. I think it's clear that while Travis got an opportunity to go to the pro tour 
and of course had that interrupted by COVID and didn't really get to wear his jersey at all. I think it seems clear that he is watching from the outside. And it's not that Justin ever misrepresented the jersey that he had or the title that he had. But what happens is, and and I don't even think he's obligated to correct anybody, but there's only been one national crit champion around for the past two years because Travis wasn't there. And people forgot that the pro crit champ was Travis. And I can imagine that while Travis was out trying to race at an even higher level, it probably bothered him to have been forgotten for that, but he wasn't trying to cash that check. Now he's back. And now he wants to sort of take his seat at the table. And I think he just finally cracked him. And I, you know, you can go read the exchange and see how it all went out. I think you see Travis saying a lot of things like, Justin, I think you're a great talent. And I don't think you've lied about anything. Or, you know, I think you're a great rider. Like he sort of prefaces a lot of his comments. But then he says, but sort of like, I don't mean to be a dick, but. And then you know kind of what's coming next. I think neither of those guys are probably as angry at each other as it seems in the online comments. And we've made a bigger deal out of it than they have. It's it's probably been really, really good for the upcoming crit season because now we've got some drama and some excitement and some rivalry going. I think those guys got a little too personal with each other. And I think they both look like assholes because of it. I think they both looked... It, they made They each made themselves... They did not redeem themselves, either of them, with the things that they said to each other about each other. I think I think that bummed everybody out. So the first opportunity that they get to go head to head is Blue Dome, Tulsa, the first night. Justin's going to be here in D.C. for Armed Forces, but Travis is heading to Unbound Gravel to compete there. So that's a missed opportunity. Legion and Best Buddies will be together here at Arms Forces, but the two of them will go head-to-head at Tulsa. Right after Tulsa is the U.S. Pro Crit Championship. If you listen to Justin's podcast, he and another person from Cycling Tips put together a podcast called From the Gun, long anticipated. It has one episode out as of today, but in that episode of the podcast, Justin either decides right then and there or is close to deciding right then and there that he's not going to race pro crit championships anymore. He's going to line up in Belize and race in the Belize pro crit championships. He has political reasons for that, racial reasons for that with the killing of George Floyd and that what he talks about is the heaviness of wearing the stars and stripes in a summer of just, racial reckoning with the Black Lives Matter movement and the backlash that came from certain parts of the the Republican Party as a result of it. I don't know what to take out of any of this. If he genuinely is going to not race pro crit championships and is going to go for another nationality, I've never been in his position and I don't think I'm capable of talking about it, but what do you think we do or where do we go from here when these guys start seeing each other again in real life? I didn't know about the Belizean option as a thing that Justin was considering. Like he has been 
on and off trying to make decisions about like whether to take out a Belizean license since I was teammates with them. And, you know, they go and over there and race and there are opportunities for them there. And there's like land that he might own there. And like, at, you know, that's a whole other podcast, but like, you know, his connections there run deep and I, I can understand why he might want to do that. That's a really interesting approach. I also think he's got to decide, is that Jersey part of his marketing success right now, the US Jersey? And does he need it? What's he going to do if you lose it? This is the thing that's tough about being a national champion and why I laugh about it being the one ring. Because you start to make decisions about trying to keep it. And when you lose it, it's such a relief. It's a, it's a burden lifted. I talked to Jeremy Powers about this and and what an ironic thing it is to feel relief when you finally aren't the national champion anymore. Justin's got to think about how he's going to market himself when he doesn't have the stars and stripes because that day will come inevitably. Uh, being the Belizean champion is a way around that perhaps. I don't know. I'm speculating, but I think it can go a couple different ways. There were times where there was bad blood out there in the crits. I think about like Holloway versus UHC. I think about Hilton and Luke versus everybody else taking people like sweepers, sweepers taking the other trains to the curb in the last corner. You can go all the way back to Roberto Gaggioli from my era and, and even before like, you know, Roberto Gaggioli kicking John Brady's bars out from under them after they crossed the finish line and John Brady breaking his femur or Gaggioli coming after Johnny Sunt with the crossbar of a sawhorse or, me getting into a fist fight with Radisa Kubrick after the fin- like that's that's what crits were like in the nineties. There weren't cameras, and so there were fist fights in the parking lot. There were fist fights in the races. That doesn't happen anymore. So even when those guys are making their their videos of all the banging and stuff there's going on, you know that's like cleaner than it used to be. Last time I can remember someone getting crashed was was Jake Keough and Rasan going at it. That video's on the internet if you want to watch that one too. What was that, the Manhattan Grand Prix or Dana Point? I think so. Yeah, yeah, one of those two. Yeah. So Tulsa in particular, there tends to be a lot of crashes at Tulsa. Short stretches, six corner courses, and a lot of jockeying for position. You know, I, I just hope that it doesn't, when those guys are in person, that it doesn't escalate into actual war on the bikes, um, that we aren't watching those guys take each other to curbs and things like that. But I think that potential is there. I think the difference is that everybody's watching and and you don't get away with that stuff anymore. Um, it's right there. You take someone to the curb, it's on TV now. Um, you take your hands off the bars, it's on TV now. So what, what I am looking forward to is um, I think Travis's team is going to be an attacking team. I don't think they're going to wait around for the sprint. I don't think Travis needs to wait around for the sprint. I don't think Marcotte's going to wait for the sprint. So I think we want to see which team is stronger. We know that Justin has an amazing lead out and that train is pretty well oiled. They've brought that train to not just the SoCal local crits, right? If that train's been successful at all the big crits in America, but who have they been racing against? Who's left? There's no, no pro teams come to the races. Even when they were an amateur team and they're the best team in the race. Yes, they're a great team. They deserve to be a pro team. But the, pro t- the other pro teams in America are not sending squads, and they used to. So I want to see what happens when other teams at Justin's level show up, disrupt that train, and there's actually some um, figurative punches thrown in the races, and we'll see what happens. Looking forward to it. 
are we at the risk of forgetting about teams like Webplex or riders like Gibbons or Mullervy or Connor Saley from ButcherBox? Are these guys getting lost in the shuffle because it's suddenly Justin and McCabe? Yeah, I mean, at least for right now, right? We watched that happen in Cross and, you know, everybody wants to talk about about Vanderpool and Van Aert, right? So there's a, there's a little bit of that going on. Well, let's see what those trains look like. Let's see if ButcherBox can can assemble their train and and bang bars with those guys. I hope they can. Um, you know, Cliff Bar is always there. I think what you see with those teams is um, sort of a strategy that we often implemented against UHC, which we called it the reverse lead out, where we would put our sprinter on the back of the UHC train. And instead of leading that rider out, we would we would protect him from behind or from around. We didn't want to be in front of him because we didn't want him to be the 12th rider. We wanted him to be the seventh rider. The last part of my career revolved around being the seventh rider behind UHC, you know, to, to get to the finish line and then seeing what we could do. Cliff Bar is not going to be able to put six guys over the top, but can they put someone on the back of the battle and slot in for third? Yeah, they usually have one guy who can do that. And ButcherBox has been doing great, right? I mean, it's been a couple of years of putting their train together and it seems like they've got something going right now. So we'll see what they can do. But yeah, I do think it has overshadowed the other teams to a degree. Well, we've got three weeks to go until this all starts. Adam Meyerson, thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, appreciate you having me. Thanks for joining us in another episode of the show. We are a proud partner of the Wide Angle Podium network of shows. Head on over to WideAnglePodium.com to find out more about this and all the other shows that they have to offer there. Today's episode was written, directed, and produced by me, Rob Kelly. Special thanks again to Adam Meyerson, who came on board to help lay this all out. We're going to get back on track. This, of course, was kind of an emergency episode because of Crit Beef with our 2021 preview show next week with Celine Oberholzer and Alan Schroeder. So please come on back again next week for more stories from our Criterium Nation. The Slow Ride Podcast, three idiots who are usually wrong. The Slow Ride Podcast, the titanium of podcasts. The Slow Ride Podcast. It's like if David Vanderpool had a podcast. The Slow Ride Podcast, the Zwift racing of podcasts. The Slow Ride Podcast, find the real advice. The Slow Ride Podcast, the arrow helmet of podcasts. The Slow Ride Podcast, sport leader coming through. The Slow Ride Podcast, when's Lance going to sue us? The Slow Ride Podcast, the experts in French cycling. The Slow Ride Podcast. Official Fan Experience Zone on Facebook. The Slow Ride Podcast, the gravel bike of podcasts. The Slow Ride Podcast, both vertically and horizontally compliant. The Slow Ride Podcast. New episodes every Tuesday.